Our sermon will come from Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's a full chapter, but I want us to get the most of it, and I want us to read the entire chapter at once. And I pray that it would be profitable. But Deuteronomy chapter 8. Starting in verse 1. All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply did not wear out on you, nor does your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God is disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a land a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without scarcity in which you will not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built up good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will be my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who was giving you the power to make, your, to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. It shall come about, if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after the other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you today that you will surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish, because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. The word of the Lord. There's a Spanish philosopher, George Santaya. He's credited with the old adage that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Many of you have taken that and said, basically, essentially, if you don't remember history, you're doomed to repeat it. I think this is wisdom that the world acknowledges, and no one will argue. And yet, ironically, how often does history repeat itself? We all know this to be true. If you don't know your past, it's going to happen in your future. And yet, history continually repeats itself. Genocides still happen. Economic recession that's rooted in questionable ethical practices still happen time and time again. Unjust wars still happen. Perverted laws still come to pass. Warped ideology continues to make their rounds in history. History does repeat itself. Anyone who's lived a significant amount of time, especially in the older generations, you can look at something happening now. I'm like, yep, that happened before. I've seen that. My grandparents walked through that. There's nothing new under the sun. History does repeat itself, even though we know it. And why is that? Why does that happen? If that is true, and we know this, secularists know this, how does that happen? I'm no historian, but I venture to say is that because 
the knowledge of history hasn't changed, but the knowledge of God is still not there. That people who know the facts of history still do not know the God of history. And because they don't know the God of history, the idols that are in the heart from centuries past are still here today. And until those idols are eradicated, until they come to know the God of history, they will continually serve the same idols that produce recession, wars, uh, poverty, all of these things. At the core of all these things is not a changed heart. Greed, power, pride, selfishness are the common stains of history. And they produce the same rotten fruit throughout different ages. So those who don't know history, yes, you're doomed to repeat it. Those who do know history, you're doomed to repeat it if you do not know the God of history. He is the one who changes hearts and who holds history and the future in his hands. And that's the message Moses wants to get across to the Israelites here in chapter 8. That we come now in the middle of Moses' sermon, and he's restating the law of Moses for this people here. He's speaking now to a new generation of Israelites, the ones who didn't die in the wilderness. Those, they weren't there at the initial reception of the law. He's speaking to their, their, their children and grandchildren. They weren't there when they saw at Mount Sinai, but he's speaking to now a second generation And he's reminding them of the promises that were made to them, the responsibilities that they had, the consequences of obedience and disobedience. He's reminding them as as they prepare to enter the land under the leadership of Joshua, what they are to do. And the same truth was given to their forefathers. And he's basically, basically exhorting this new generation here of the same faithfulness that God had for their forefathers. Essentially now, because of their history, Moses is basically saying now, do not make the same mistakes as your fathers. He's not calling them to salvation. And salvation has always been, even in the Old Testament, by grace alone, through faith alone. He's not calling them to salvation, but in a sense, to sanctification. That because you know this God, he is calling them now to pursue this God. He's not calling them now, here, here, come. This is not an evangelistic sermon, but this is a sermon for those who know this God. And now he's saying, because you know him, follow him. And the way that they were to do that was by going after this one thing that's repeated in this chapter. Keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. Keep, in other words, keep, literally can be guard, shamar is in the Hebrew, guard these commandments. And why is he telling them to guard these commandments? So that they'll live in the land. You look how he started in verse 1. All of the commandments that I am commanding you today shall be careful, you shall be careful to do. Why? That you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. In other words, he's saying now, Do these things so that you can be blessed. Walk in these things so that you can experience blessing. He's speaking to them and exhorting them under the covenant, the the Mosaic covenant. That was essentially the covenant that God gave to God's people at Mount Sinai. This is the covenant that they were to live under, that if you follow this covenant, you will be blessed. And if you do not follow this covenant, you will be cursed. He's exhorting them under the Mosaic covenant. This Mosaic covenant is... A conditional covenant. Remember, remember, it's a conditional covenant. In other words, it can be broken on their part. How? If you don't obey it. It's a conditional covenant that if obeyed, 
It allowed Israel to remain connected to the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. Remember the Abrahamic covenant, the basic one that God gave of blessing of land, of seed, and of blessing, right? This is the, this, this initial covenant God gave. That Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. God is going to bring it to pass, he said. God made it. He ratified it. He's going to bring it to pass. If they wanted to experience the blessings of that unconditional Abrahamic covenant, then they had to be obedient under this Mosaic covenant that he gave to them. Now, in the same way, we're still exhorted in our new covenant, all right? New Testament believers in this Brian Bible church, we're not under the Mosaic covenant, but we're still exhorted under our new covenant in Christ to keep his commandments, to guard his word, guard his commandments. Why? It's not for our salvation. We're saved in Christ. Christ completed the work, amen? amen. You're saved in Christ, if you're, in that, if you're in Christ, you're under the new covenant of Christ in his blood. You're saved. So guard his word, not to be saved, but because you're saved. So to guard his word, not for your salvation, but for your sanctification. Now, because this is true, he's exhorting them under the Mosaic covenant. There's not always a direct correlation and application for us. There's not one-to-one application that we can take this, this from this Old Testament law and say, this applies to me directly. But there is some crucial and fun- fundamental truths that we must pull away to see how is this speaking to us. Because Moses is obviously speaking to them. He's exhorting them under the Mosaic covenant, one that we're not under. However, he's not just telling them to merely keep the commandments, although he is. Moses is telling them, keep the commandments. But that's not all he's telling them to do. He's telling them, it, it's, it's more of that is, if you want to keep the commandments, you, you keep these commandments by the sincere dev, dev, devotion of your heart before God. If you want to keep these commandments, it starts at the heart level. It's not just a series of checkboxes. I haven't violated the first, second, third commandment. But no, no, he says here, keep these commandments. And why are you going to keep these? Because I want you to understand this one truth that will really produce the fruit of obedience. And what is that one truth that he's really going after for these people of God so that they obey him and experience his blessings? What is that truth? To remember God. Remember God. That motivates the obedience that they're called to do. So yes, keep the commandments, obey him. But what is driving that? Remember God. Remember God. He reminds them of their responsibility and their critical need to guard the word. And how is that produced? By remembering God. If you remember this God of salvation, this God of eternity, this God of creation, if you remember all that God has done for you, then that spurs obedience in your bones. Remember God. So we don't only need the exhortation to obey, but the soft heart that produces the obedience. Remember God. So let's remember this morning four timeless truths about God. Four timeless truths about God that should purify your devotion to him and allow you to experience his blessing. Let's remember these four timeless truths about God that should purify your devotion to him and allow you to experience his blessing. Do you want God's blessing? You want God's blessing. Do we realize, uh, we know this, I don't have to teach this to us. We know God's blessing is not always tangible, although sometimes it is. 
But God's blessing is much more than that. If you want to be blessed, happy, fulfilled, satisfied, do you want God's blessing? Because if you have God's blessing, what else do you need? And really what idolatry is, is we're seeking to be satisfied in something else. So if you want what's best for you, if you want God's blessings, let's behold as they were called to behold. And let's remember God this morning. Let's look at this first timeless truth. If we want to remember God, we need to remember God's design for your distress. Remember God's design for your distress. When you encounter distress and difficulties and pressures, what is God intending to do through you and in you? Will you encounter distress? Have you encountered distress? Maybe this week, maybe this morning, and maybe not, and maybe it's waiting for you tomorrow. But when you encounter the distress, what is God's design for you? There are many, obviously, reasons, many uh, elements of God's architecture in, in suffering. We won't hash out all of them, but let's look at one design of distress that God had for Israel. Why would it be important for them to remember God's design for them? Because obviously we know we will experience distress. And those times of distress and when we are prone to either forget God or complain against God. When you encounter distress, you do either, we can tend to do either one of forgetting God and let me just handle this my way. I'm going to just grit my hands and just try to do what I can. And that's when sin produces its fruit because we're just trying to forget God and do it our own way. Or we know God is sovereign. We've accepted that reality, but now I'm just grumbling against his sovereignty. Unfortunately, Israel did both of those things in their history. And we tend to do, we tend to do both as well. Some rejected God, some complained against God. But in this chapter, Moses covers the timeline of their history now. As he's talk, exhorting them to remember this God, he looks at their entire timeline of their history. And in this first section here, he's looking at the history, their past of their history, and what has happened to them in their past, and what should they have remembered about the distress that God ordained for them. Because after being delivered from Egypt, they came out of the grip of Pharaoh. They were now delivered, redeemed, And Israel likely just wanted to experience now the blessing right away. They wanted the fruit. Yes, no more slavery, no more punishment. Pharaoh's been defeated and humiliated before everybody. Now where's the blessing? But God had different design for them. Because why did Israel have to go through the wilderness? Why did Israel have to go through the wilderness? Some of you maybe thought, and before we read this, maybe the first thing that come to your mind is disobedience. But no, that's why they stayed in the wilderness. That's why they died in the wilderness. But I asked, why were they led to the wilderness? Why were they led to this place where their hunger and their thirst was was just amplified? Why did God lead them there after saving them there? That is because he had different plans for them. Look at verse 2. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. That, what is that? That he might humble you. He wanted to humble them. Literally, this word of humbling is to oppress someone in a sense, to highlight their dependence. The purpose that God had to leading them to the wilderness was to cause them to feel dependent upon whom? The God who saved them. That's why He led them there 
to, to oppress them, so to speak, to, to humble them to, so that they realize that they were dependent upon this God who not only has the power to save them, but the power to sustain them. They were to see their dependence. That's precisely what he did. Because look at verse 3. It says, he, he let them be hungry. He, he, he let his children starve in a sense. He let them see their need of food. Why did he do that? So they may learn that man does not live on bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from God. So his design for their distress was not just to break them down, but to build them to see their need of him daily. He wanted to increase their dependence. He humbled them. He let them be hungry. But even more, it says here, is that not only did he let them be hungry, but he fed them. He fed them. And what did he feed them? Manna. Manna from heaven. So they realized, yes, I'm a physical being, but I'm a physical being that needs more than physical resources. You need more than just bread and water. You need bread from heaven. And so in order for them to see their need, their spiritual need, in order for us to really see what we really need, what God does sometimes, beloved, is he takes something physically that you think you need so much so that you might see that you need only him and him alone. His design for distress, beloved, is to see and increase your dependence upon the God who saved you. And until that's taken from you, you don't realize that my hunger was not something that this world can satisfy. My hunger could only be satisfied by the hand of God. And that's what he wanted to do. That though God so gently makes us aware of our need and our dependence upon us, upon um, him, makes us aware of our dependence upon him by removing the physical and tangible comforts of life. One possible reason that God takes something away that we think is so important is realize we learn that there's something more than that. For example, look what, look what COVID did to us as a nation. You ever notice that, especially after all the, the laws and regulations came out, we can leave opinions and discussions on the, on the laws to the side. But when they all came out, you ever realize, especially on social media and in circles, everybody became an expert now in the U.S. Constitution. Like everybody wants to talk about how this and that was unconstitutional and how that violated, the governor does not have that authority. Like everybody came out the woodworks with all of their expertise on the government. It's like, where have you been the past several years? Like, let me see your transcripts in history. I'm sure you, fell, you flunked. <laughs> like, like where, where'd you come from? Like all, everyone now has this opinion. And why is that? It's because when they thought that their freedoms were taken away, how much more now do they cling to understand? Wait, wait, what do I stand on? So when God takes something away, you got to be made aware that his purpose is not just to break it down, but to realize he is the one who makes you stand and makes you walk. And he is the one who feeds you and sustains you in the darkness and days. So whether the big things or small things, this is not just huge distresses, but even the small inconveniences of life. How much are you irked when your schedule gets knocked around? How much are you irked when, when the kids start acting up? How much are you irked when the money starts to you know, flow down a little bit and start to trickle? Like how, how much are those little rocks in the ocean that really bothers us? Because how much is our hope 
and our security based on something physical that is not meant to satisfy us. That even the small distresses, the small mundane things of life, the inconveniences of life are there sometimes to make you aware that you do not need that or that person. But what you need is to be fed by me. That's why Jesus in the wilderness, when he was tempted in Matthew chapter 4, even he quoted this. It says that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. That he designs in our distress to make us aware that I need to feed and feast on his word alone. How much of of, of what really is in our hearts is exposed when we're put to the test? He says here, I led you there to humble you, testing you, to purify you, so I can see what's in your heart. God already knows. He's omniscient. Amen? He knows what's in our heart, but when he lets you go through that distress, it really brings to the surface, what is it that I really do love? Because I'm not willing to give that up. And if it's trying to give up right now, I'm going to fight. Because you guard. Let me protect my idol. Don't touch my idol. You you can touch that. I gave that up. But no, I still got some idols here. Let Let me guard that. But when God begins to rock the subtle, the small, and the big things of your life, what is some of his design sometimes to make you learn? You don't live by that. He's bringing to the surface of what's there at the heart. That's why he repeats it in the end of verse 3. Sorry, verse 5. That the Lord, your, the Lord that thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you I was in the wilderness, was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. He reminds us that God does us in love. That this is not just this, this transcendent God who has no concern over your life and he just wants to humble you at any opportunity. But as a father loves his child, he's disciplining you so that you can learn to rely on him. This is an act of love that God has for you. And because he loves you so much, he humbles he tests so that we realize that life is more than just the physical things. These tests were defined, were intended to refine Israel by burning off that dross that they had, to burning off the, 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 the impurities of their soul. The test of being in the wilderness that God led them there was that they would increase in their dependence upon him to purify that draw so that they would enhance their relationship with Yahweh. I mean, you think, if you think about for kids, how much do they hate washing their hands sometimes? It's like, wash your hands. I just washed my hands. Wash them again. They don't realize you just touch raw chicken and that can kill you. Wash your hands. It's an act of love. If I didn't love you, I'd tell you to put your fingers in your mouth. But God in his love is intending to purify the impurities on your hands and in your heart so that you would be clean. In verse 4, that's what he provides for them. He says their clothing did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. But he cared for them supernaturally. So this testing accomplished its purpose. It uncovered what was in their hearts. And just like testing there, accomplished its purposes in our lives to reveal what's in our hearts. 
So Moses is calling them to remember their history now. Remember God. Remember the God of your history, of your forefathers. And what was he designing to do in their distress? And it's important for them to realize this as they're going into the promised land. Because when they experience distress, are they going to grumble like their forefathers? Are they going to disobey like their forefathers? Or are they going to remember that God's design from the beginning is to humble you and to make you love him even more? Second timeless truth is that remember God's adoration in your abundance. Remember God's adoration in your abundance. Because now, having looked back, looked back at their history, he's now looking ahead. Because what he says in verse 7, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. So he knows what's ahead of them. This good land is ahead of you now. So he's looking ahead now, turning from looking back. He's looking ahead, and he exhorts them in the same manner to do what their previous generations should have done. And what is that? Verse 6. Therefore, you shall keep, remember guard, keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. He He takes it even further now. To keep these commandments, guard these commandments which you've heard, guard all this word that I've given to you. But how are you doing that? How is that said now in verse 6? By walking and fearing him. By walking and fearing him, remember this God and and to do what he says, but even more, to fear him at the heart, to have this fear of God. Fear this God. Reverence this God. Heart adoration and the action are equally important because he's not just calling them just to do what God says. In other words, you don't want to just obey God because he said to do it, although we should, but we need to at the heart level to fear the God who gave us the commandment. Because if you fear the God who gave you the commandment, it naturally flows in obedience. And he's calling them, not only do these things, don't only guard this word, but also fear this God. Fear this God. So do these commandments, walk in these commandments, and fear this God. Think about it this way. If you had a diagnosis, a severe diagnosis the doctor gave you with the prognosis that you're going to die in two weeks, unless you follow this regimen that I'm going to give you. And if you do this regimen, you will live until you die of natural causes. What are you going to do with that regimen? I hope you follow it. If he says, I'm going to die in two weeks, but if I follow this regimen, I'll live until I die of natural causes, give me that regimen. I don't care if it has me jumping on one foot and tossing around. I don't care what it is. Give me that regimen, right? I want to live. That's the heart behind it is that I realize that God's word here is a source of life. That I want to fear him and reverence him because I know who he is. And this is not just any God, but this is the king of kings. I want to fear this God, this God who gives life, gives life eternal. That's why he says, don't fear man, but fear the one who can kill your body and soul. And so he says here now, guard this word and fear me. And you fear God, we fear God. How? How do we nurture that fear of God? By encountering Him, seeing God. The more you see God, the more you realize, I must follow this God. You encounter Him, encounter Him in His Word. The more you see Him, you fear Him. And this reason is important because when they do reach the promised land, which He said you're heading to, there is much temptation to forget the God who brought them there. 
He realized this temptation for them, that when they see this promised land, this land with, 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 with pomegranates, with richness of honey, with olive oil, this, this beautiful land, when they see all of this, what are they tempted to do now? All of their physical resources are met. They see all of the blessings of this land coming out of Egypt, right? I mean, you've been whipped on your back for, for all these years, and now you're having this full land. What is the temptation to do? I have everything I need. Because I have everything, I don't need any one. Verse 9, he says, A land where you eat food without scarcity, in which you will not lack anything. A land whose stones are iron and whose heels you can dig copper. In other words, you're not going to be hungry for anything. You have everything. And because that temptation is there, you will think you don't need anything. But here's what they were to do now in response to that. Because this is true, and that temptation is true, even for us as we experience blessings. But look how he encouraged them to guard the commandments in a sense, and to remember God, and to remember him. Verse 10. When you have eaten and are satisfied, what are they to do? You shall bless the Lord your God. Bless him for the good land which he has given you. You see this chain here? You will eat. You will be satisfied, but what are you to do when you eat and are satisfied? You shall bless the Lord. You bless him. In other words, you praise God. You praise him. They were to bless the Lord for the good. They were to remember that his goodness and his greatness and his provision, that when they receive that blessing, you praise God. Because if you don't, what are you tempted to do? You'll believe that I produce this crop. I got us this land. This is from my hand. These are these subtle temptations because they would become proud to think that they have provided it. Think of all the, the, the subtle ways that even us, how we're prone to take credit for God's provision. Even the small things. You got a paycheck. Maybe you have a successful business. You think, well, yeah, I mean, I went to college. I, I did do the work. I mean, some people don't put in the work for college. And people, some people don't study. And some people don't work hard night and day to start up your business. To be an entrepreneur, it's hard. But, you know, I did do that work. And, you know, I did. But we don't realize that many other people do the same work. Many other people sweat the same sweat. And yet, they don't have the same outcome. Oh, wait, wait, wait. But, but, but you see, I, but I did have it. This is one thing that I kind of followed. No, 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 no. Two men can be in the same field as a farmer, tilling the same ground, planting the same seed, and what is it that allows the harvest to come up? Nothing but the goodness of God. I don't care how hard you've worked. Two men can work the same sweat, work the same hours, work at the same diligence, and the only thing that produces a harvest is the hand of God. I don't care how hard you work. I don't care how much you know. I don't care who you know and where you've been. He's saying when you get to that land, when you get blessed, the temptation is to see the blessing and now forget the God who gave it to you. And so what is the antidote? Is to bless God, to realize that every blessing that you get, everything, every mountaintop you reach is by the sovereign, gracious, merciful hand of God. So therefore, you praise him for it. Praise him for it. No matter what it is, you praise him for it. For us as New Testament saints, we're reminded as, as, as Christians, we are to rejoice how often? Sometimes. Every now and then. 
Rejoice always. 1 Thessalonians 16, rejoice always. How many times does Paul exhort the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord? We are to be marked with, with gratitude, with thankfulness to God, realizing that everything that we have, that from him, through him, and to him are what? All things. And I will give him praise in what? All things. And so for I will bless him when? All the time. I will bless him how? Everything I have, I will bless God. And so we must remember God's adoration in our abundance. Remember that no matter how abundant God has gifted you or blessed you, you bless and praise the God who's given it to you. Yes, he does honor hard work and obedience. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is our temptation to take credit for the hard work that he's gifted you to do. And so he says, now, Israel, when you seek your blessing, what do you do with that? You bless God. You bless God. And when we bless God, what's going to happen now? We're going to do really the hardest commandment. We're going to guard his word. Because I realize God gave me this. I realize God provided all of this to me. So I'm going to keep his word. I'm going to guard. I'm going to treasure it. And I'm going to bless him when he blesses me. And I'm going to do it again. I'm going to obey him more. Because he wants me. So I'm increased levels of obedience. Increased levels of faithfulness. Because I realize that God blesses me in all things. And so I will guard the word. But I'm guarding it as I'm blessing him. And I'm praising him for all things. So how do we remain humble in our prosperity? You bless God. No matter how good and how much God has provided, you bless God, knowing that he gave it. And because he gave it, he gets the glory. This really does have a purifying effect on us too. Because as you do receive prosperity and you want to bless God, let me ask this of you. Would you bless God for something that you have that you know does not honor him? Would you bless God for the seven-digit income knowing that you've neglected your family all year to get it? I think it, it does have a purifying effect this here. He says that when you bless me for all that you've received, the believer in his heart can't bless God for something that I know. God's not pleased with this. He's not pleased with how I got this. He's not pleased with what's coming from that. That yes, I have this, I can enjoy these luxuries, but now look, where's my dedication and my adoration for God Monday through Friday? How is this actually working in my life? How is this refining my affections? But when we bless God rightly for the blessings that he's given to us, we enjoy them rightly, we can feast in them rightly, and we share them rightly. So it does have a purifying effect for them because now I realize the God who gave this to me, and now I want to even guard what he's given to me, and guard his words so that I live it out even more fully. So you've got to remember God's adoration in your abundance so that you realize it was God's hand who provided. But even more, this third timeless truth we must move on to is to remember God's mighty hand on your mountaintop. Remember God's mighty hand on your mountaintop. Because now he moves to the same word, the same warning here in verse 13, verse 11, but he uses in the English here, it's a different translation, but it's the same word. It starts off with beware, beware, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. Now he starts off, beware. It's almost like in the negative, like caution yourself, watch out. This is imperative. This is a command. Beware but what are you going to beware? What are you cautioning of? He's saying, in other words, keep, keep guard. But in other words, in the sense of beware, watch out. 
that you don't forget to do the commandments and the ordinances and the statutes. Why? Watch out that you don't forget it. Why? It's so that you will remember that it is God and his power that got you to where you are. The temptation is that when they come and see the land that they've experienced, this land in verse 12, it says, when you've eaten and are satisfied and you've built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and the silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, when you see this full land and all this that you have, this wealth, these resources, this, this armor, when you have all that you have, they'll think that it was themselves that did it. Look at verse 14. He says, after when you see all this, what's going to happen? Then your heart will become proud. And you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, when you see here is that when you get the gold, you get the silver, when you get all of these riches, what are you tempted to fall into? It's pride. You're going to think it's, wait a minute, it wasn't God's hand. It was whose hand? It was my hand. I multiplied this gold and silver. I got this land. I achieved. I conquered. It was my strength. That's why in verse 17, otherwise you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. He sees the danger here. And how often for us, when things are going well in your life, You ever notice that sometimes when things are going well, no mounting pressures, how much does your devotion to the Lord dwindle? When you had a really good day spiritually, how how less serious are are we about taking in the word of God and devotion with this God? When things go well, how prone are we to ease up on our need and our awareness of our dependence upon God? When that need is not there, that I need God, when things are going well, when I'm on the mountaintop, when I have the gold and silver, when I have all this wealth, right, so to speak, how much are we prone to forget that it was God who brought us there? And I don't need him as much. I'll just, you know, I'll ease up the reins a little bit. Things, things are going pretty well. But the heart of this is really rooted, what he's saying here is this pride, 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 pride. And this is the heart of pride that that really mirrors the heart of Satan. I want you to hear that, that this this, this caution of pride is not just just some small transgression. This, This caution and temptation that even as believers that we're prone to fall into is to fall into the pattern of pride that resides in Satan's heart. I'm not saying you're losing your salvation here. I'm saying here that the same temptation of pride begins at the heart of Satan. I want you to see this briefly. In in Ezekiel chapter 28, when you see a picture here of Ezekiel chapter 28, he's he's speaking of the the king of Tyre he's thrown down. But it's really here that the greater, deeper depth here, the meaning here is a picture of the fall of Satan here. In Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 17, we won't look at the whole section there, but it begins in verse 11. But verse 17, it's speaking of Satan essentially. It says about Satan that your heart was lifted up. Why? Because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. He says here that Satan's heart, his heart was lifted up. In other words, his heart became pride, proud. Why? Because of his beauty. 
that when Satan was created, he was a beautiful creature, likely a cherubim, a high order angel in God's kingdom. And it says here that he became proud at heart. Why? Because he saw his beauty. In other words, he saw all that was great. Now, let's, let's establish here, he was beautiful, right? We're not, dis- we're not disputing that. He was beautiful. He was a majestic angel. So it wasn't like he was seeing something that wasn't true. But how he interpreted that truth was what brought him to sin. Because he saw his beauty, his heart then was lifted up. Because he saw, wow, look how great I am. Well, look at this. Look where I'm at. Look at, look at all of this. Wow, you should worship me. When, instead of saying, look how great God is, let's worship God, he took that inherent beauty that God gave him and he wanted to take credit for it. And so as God here is exhorting the Israelites here, when you get to your mountaintop, when you get your riches, when you see all that land, the temptation is that that was my power. It was my wealth that did this, that I did this by my power. The motive here is always to get praise where God needs to get the praise. And that's our temptation as well, that we are so tempted that when we do get those, those, those small victories that we want to rob God of his glory, that it was, it was my strength. It was my way. Yeah, I, I, I did the right thing. But the antidote to this is in found in verse 11. In verse 11, it says, Beware that you do not keep, I'm sorry, you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes. In other words, by not forgetting to obey and to remember. In other words, remember the God who gave you commandments and to do them. You ever think about why he's exhorting them multiple times to do these commandments? If you go back a couple chapters to chapter 6, and he tells them, when your sons ask you, why are we observing this Passover? Why are we doing this ritual? Why are we following these statutes? Why are we doing these commandments? He says right after that in chapter 6, verse 20, it says, when your son asks you in time, saying, what do these testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean, which the Lord is commanding us? So when, when your kids ask you, verse 21, you shall say to your son, We were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord showed his great distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So when your sons ask you, why are we doing these things? Why are we keeping these commandments? We're doing this as a reminder of this is the God who saved me who redeemed me, who brought me out. And our obedience to God's word intricately there is woven in to understand who I am and how I am to act. That our obedience to God's word really is a manifestation of realizing all that God has done for you. So you do these commandments, you do these rituals, you do these things, he says, so that you remember who God is who saved you and you remember who you are in light of this God. That the purpose now is, as you do these things, you realize all that we have is not me. This is God's blessing. And so the antidote for this prideful heart is this obedience. You ever think about all the New Testament ordinances for us? The Lord's Supper, the communion, the, the preaching of the word, like all these things that we're called to do as New Testament saints, they're not just a religious rite. We're not doing these things just to ease our conscience. I don't know about you, but every time I see a baptism, I can't, I'm holding back tears. And when we do the Lord's Supper, I'm I'm broken because I realize even in my sin, I realize what Christ has accomplished in my place. 
that as I'm hearing the preaching of the word, I'm sitting under the conviction of the spirit. All I can think about is the grace of God and how I want to conform more to Christ's likeness. That when I meet with the brethren and we realize our weaknesses, we share one another and we're sharpened by one another and we realize how much I need the people of God. We don't run from these things. We don't do them out of just some sort of obligation. But as we do these things, these ordinary means of grace, we realize how good God is, how glorious Christ is. And I want to follow and obey him even more. That that's God's design for us, even as New Testament saints, to obey and to guard his word so that we be conformed to his likeness. That I realize as I'm, I'm doing all of these things that God has commanded me to do, I realize every time I'm reminded, man, I was lost, but now I'm found. This now impacts my obedience. And so even though we are blessed, I realize in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, what Paul says is that what is that you have that you have not received? And if you, why do you boast then as if you had not received it? If that is true, everything you have, you have it because God gave it to you. So where's the boasting for us that we realize likewise is that it comes from God's hand? We move on to fourth timeless truth. Remember God's holiness in your heart. Remember God's holiness in your heart. And in a sense, we must remember that he alone is God. Remember that he shares his glory with none other, no one else. That God alone is God, and he shares his glory with no one else. The consequence of failing to guard and forgetting God, here he says in, in verses 19 and 20, the consequences of not doing this for them is death. That's pretty straightforward. So if, if I do these things, in other words, or you die. That seems pretty harsh. But it's not as a sense that he wants them to say, do these things, walk on a tightrope, so that you won't get obliterated. Like that, that's not the heart of the commandment here. He's not saying, make, make sure you don't veer to left or right because then I'm going to strike you down. That's not the heart of the commandment. But he's saying here, you are to guard the word, guard my commandments. Why? In verse 19. Because if you ever forget the Lord your God, look how he phrased it after this, and go after what? Other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you today, you will surely perish. He's not concerned here with just messing up. He's saying here, if you go after, in other words, you you walk after, you worship, you serve, and even in a sense, you bow down to them, you are committing high treason against God. He's not just concerned with just strict obedience, but he's saying here, the heart of it is, is if you go after, if you turn away from me, if you forget me, if you forget my law, if you forget my commandments, you forget all that I am, what are you going to really doing? You're turning away to other gods. You're committing idolatry. And if you do that, you will die. If they go after other gods, the penalty is death. And even the instructions in the law is, is death by the hands of their own countrymen. But even, even more, death we saw in their history was by other nations as they were judged. That there is a literal punishment of death for them under this covenant. So where is the justice here? Where is the justice here? How would a God just kill them immediately for disobedience? Where does this gracious and loving God that we know of come in play here? Well, we'll expand a bit on that next week. But I will touch on one sliver of that answer. 
One sliver of the answer is the fact that God, for God, the goal is purity for his people. The goal is purity. We'll deal with the ethics later, but we must understand here at heart, God wants purity and devotion at heart. He's concerned with the purity of God's people because he is a holy God. And so God's aim is a holy people purely devoted to a holy God. So let's ask the question, why did this generation eventually face God's judgment? If we can sum it to one word, I think we can safely say idolatry, idolatry, idolatry. Idolatry. That they were judged because the God who called them out of Egypt, the same God they were disobedient to. So just like those who repeat history, even with knowledge, remember, history does repeat itself. And even now, we realize that people who know all these things about God can still disobey the same God they know about. And why is that? Because they only know about this God. So we know that I'm supposed to go to church. I know I'm supposed to be, uh, I'm supposed to follow God to some degree. I know these things intellectually about God. But for you, my friend, if you only know about this God and seek to win his favor by obeying him and seek to win his favor by doing the right things, I may press you and ask you, do you actually know this God? Has your heart been changed to actually know this God and to obey him out of the fruits of that? There are many who understand and see the the rights and rituals of Christianity as just a checklist to do the right thing so that they can earn God's favor. And it's backwards. Because the same reason that they were destroyed later for their sin is not because they did the wrong thing. It's because their hearts were not circumcised. They needed a new heart. So I don't know what you know about Christianity or what you know about this God, but you must know that the only way to please God is to lay down your works and trust in the perfect work of Christ. To realize that this change happens at the heart level that Ezekiel says that he must give you a heart of flesh. He has to change your heart from the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So if you're changed, in other words, if you're born again with new desires and new affections, then you willingly want to embrace and follow this God who changed you inwardly. So don't hear the message as just a message, I must do the right thing. But hear it as it begins with Christ. Christ must change me. I am unclean, I am hardened, and I am so prone to disobey this God who I know exists, but I do not know him. And the only way you can know him is by falling at the feet of Christ, and he will change you inwardly so that you can obey him outwardly. Now for believers now, what, we, what, what, what must we do with this? Is to realize You too, believer, you live not by just the bread of life. I mean, the bread of this world, but you live by the bread of life. So Jesus says, I am the bread of heaven. He said, the fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died, Jesus said. But he says, no, I am the bread of life. Eat of me and you will live forever. And for us, beloved, we never cease eating of this Christ who laid down his life. Though as, as, as you're insufficiencies, as your weaknesses, as your sins, as all of your frailties are exposed before this God, I pray that you would feast upon this God who is opening your eyes to see all that you do not have and that you will fix your eyes upon him and feast and see all that you can have in him. This is an ongoing discipline for us to feast upon the word of God, to remember him. And a few practical things I want to leave us with is for believers here, remember the danger of idolatry. 
that again, that this danger of idolatry is not just for unbelievers, but even we can fall prey to idolatry at heart. Remember the danger of idolatry. Because notice here, this passage declares that really the first stage to the road of idolatry is ingratitude. Idolatry begins in ingratitude, forgetting God. Because Moses reminds his audience that the only appropriate response to eating the bounty that God provides is to bless Yahweh. But this chapter here, it exhibits a downward spiral in which the forgetting Yahweh leads to ingratitude, which leads to self-sufficiency, which leads to idolatry. I think we see that similar plot in Romans 1 when Paul is speaking of the unbeliever. He says in verse 21, Romans 1, that for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. And then they, in verse 23, they exchanged the glory of God for physical idols. That it begins forgetting God, but a heart that is not thankful to God. That idolatry really, in a sense, begins with ingratitude. Forgetting the God who blessed you and who made you and sustained you. That we are to be constantly giving thanks to this God. Guard yourselves. Remember the danger of idolatry. And because that's a real danger for you, believer, you should be marked with gratitude. Because verse 19 explains how they didn't just forget Yahweh, but they went after and served other gods. And that's what we do. We don't just forget God. We really are serving something else. Also, I want us to remember the danger of success. Remember the danger of success, believer. And how we're tempted to forget that every service we render has its roots in the gracious and unmerited call of God. Everything we render to God. Everything we do. Every word you utter, every strength that you have, everything that God gives you has its roots in the unmerited call of God for you. That the reason you're able to do anything is because the Lord has graciously endowed you with the ability to succeed. So our testing is not just in trials, but beloved, your testing is also in your successes. That when you do succeed and when you do well, what does that do into your heart? Do you take credit or do you give thanks? A good day, the, the, the big successes, the small successes, uh, think about even we have a good day of fighting temptation. I had a good day today. You know, I, I've been struggling with this sin, but you know, I had a good day. I actually excelled a little bit today. You notice what's wrong with that? I excelled today. I excelled today. I, I did decently today. You know, I didn't respond the way I normally did. But no, 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 no. You know, God is refining me. I, God has been so good to me because he, he gave me the strength to really respond in the right way. He gave me, the, reminding me the truth to fight this temptation. Even the small successes, the danger of success. We want to succeed. We want to excel. But the danger of success is to take credit for what God is doing. What about, oh, I've had a peaceful day with the kids. This is a peaceful day. It's a small success, one that we take credit for. Oh, that presentation at work went really well. I think I handled that pretty well. Small successes. We had a good time together with my brothers and sisters at community group. I made it to work safely. I made it to church safely. We made it home safely. I'm laying on my pillow at night today restfully. Why? Thank you, Lord. 
These are all small successes. I have a pantry full of food at home. My refrigerator is stocked. I got a promotion at work. I got a steady paycheck. I passed that test at school. Whatever the success for you is, it's not only designed to give you blessing, but it can also be a test for us. Is what will we do with that success? Will we give credit to God and bless him and bless him rightfully, or will we subtly take credit for it and relinquish our need on this God who's blessed us? Take blessing well. Take success well. And how do you do that? By blessing God rightly for your success. Do you bless him or forget him? And even more, how often when things go well, do we make excuses for we don't have, when things go well, we make excuses of, of now this is maybe a confession booth now. Like, oh, this is a, this is a full day of ministry, man. I, this is a full, I had good interactions. Oh, I did this, did this. Oh, let's preach this sermon today. Oh, that, that's really good. You know what? Tonight, I can skip my personal devotion. I mean, I had a full day, but wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You need to be devoted to the Lord. I mean, you need personal devotion. Then no matter how good your day went, how we're inclined, like, I don't need, I can skip this today. I don't need to go to church this Sunday. You know, we had a full week. I, you know, I went to community group twice this week. I had a prayer group. I don't need to go to church. I don't need these, these means of common grace that God has intricately woven to the church for your success. I don't need that. I don't need these things. I, I'm, I'm okay. I can skip this. Now, I'm not trying to be legalistic here, but I'm really just pressing the question of here is when are we tempted to step away from God in small ways while suddenly neglecting basic and specific commands that God has given to you for your good? So remember, lastly, is that remember that all is in Christ. Remember that all is in Christ. Beloved, we too, obviously, we live not by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And in Christ, the word has become flesh. We feast upon him. We find all that we need in him. We need to grow in him. We need to feed in him. We need to delight in him. Be humbled in him. In every trial, may your diet be consumed more with Christ. In every trial, may your diet be now refined and purified to feast more on Christ. And in every blessing that you're privileged to enjoy, let it, let it draw your eyes back to God from whom every good thing flows. Feast upon Christ. Feast upon his word that you realize that you are a physical being, but you need more than physical resources. So pursue these means of grace that God has given to you and feast upon them. And because all of this is true, because all of this is in fact true, let's echo Moses' words now. Believer, now guard the word. Guard his word. Guard his word and be blessed. Let's pray. Father, we do desire to honor you. And we are no different in many ways than the Israelite there standing in chapter 8. That we see the glitz and the glam of the world and God so often we're prone to fall astray. Lord, I pray you would draw our eyes to you that we would remember you. We'd remember God in our blessings, in our triumphs in our defeats, in our strugglings, in everything that we remember you and that we would surrender to you in all things. So would you purify in us our hearts this morning a desire for you that we would actually live with full obedience and increased obedience. Perfect that work in us, I pray for the sake of Christ in his name. Amen.